Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with my co-host, Tina Pippin. Um, this month, we welcome a guest whose work, I would say, has been nothing short of an intellectual and methodological beacon for those of us seeking to understand power, dissent, discipline, and radical possibility within the institutions we inhabit and also co-create. Roderick Ferguson models cultural studies at its finest. Um, his work is astute in mapping changing technologies of containment and capture, even as it is constantly honoring um, forms of insurgent imagination and radical movements that cannot be fully contained ever and are constantly remaking themselves. If you have read um, any of his books, you will know how um, Rod works in and through contradictions of power in a way that doesn't simply analyze power relations, but also instantiates in its sort of basic model of scholarship and thinking fresh ways of negotiating and changing those power relations. So um, I think this is apparent from his first book, Aberrations in Black, for just a queer of color critique. Um, this book explodes existing disciplinary paradigms. Um, it shows how sociological theories of racial difference and racialized poverty as well have been contingent with discourses on sexuality and specifically black sexual pathologies. Um, when we become aware of the depth of that entanglement of discourses, um, Ferguson um, writes, it becomes a lot harder to separate things like the study of capital from the study of race, from the study of gender, from the social sciences, from the sciences, and so on. Um, so what I'm saying to listeners now is that if you are a person who's trying to articulate the work you are doing in relation to a number of fields, or if you are cleaving against disciplinary silos or majors or um, sort of professional lanes set out for you, reading Rod's work, and I think specifically this book, is like turning on a light in a room that you didn't know was where the lights were off. Um, Rod's second and third book anchor some of these same sort of themes about disciplinarity and the politics of knowledge directly in relation to university institutions. So um, the reorder of things, the university as, and its pedagogies of minority difference is um, about the rise of interdisciplinary departments like black studies, women's studies, ethnic studies um, in relation to student uprisings and movements of the 1960s and 70s and basically argues and shows how um, administrative power tried to capture some of those movement energies and incorporate them into the sort of mission of the university and the the, the, the mixed consequences of that. Um, I love assigning Rod's book, We Demand, the University and Student Protests, which redacts a lot of those same themes in a way that is very um, accessible to um, undergraduate students. Um, I recommend all of these to everyone all the time. Uh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop like listing all of Rod's accolades and trying to, to like give summaries of all of his work. Um, look him up. Um, <laughs> basics, important things. Rod is currently a professor of American studies and women, gender, sexuality studies at Yale. He previously taught at Indiana University, Purdue, right? Am I right about that? Yes. No, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. Illinois, Illinois, Indiana, those Midwest places. No Illinois and the University of Minnesota. Um, he served as the president of the American Studies Association previously. He has written a lot. Um, we are so honored to have um, him on our podcast and to get to interview someone who I think for me definitely, and I think for a lot of others is, is um, has just been an enabling presence in the worlds that, that we, we inhabit. Welcome, Rod. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, and, well. And thank you for that um, <laughs> really layered introduction. You know? <laughs> well, we're really glad to have you here. Um, since this is a radical pedagogy podcast, let's start with pedagogy. Uh, if we could get you to tell us about the influences and formation of yourself as a pedagogue, as a teacher, as a learner, especially in your interdisciplinary studies uh, and teaching. And, you know, how did you come to do this work hmm. and the work that, you know, your soul demands, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, talk about your influences and 
take take us from your origins to your present work in the academy. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think I'll answer the way which I imagine a lot of uh, your interviewees answer, and that's to talk about their teachers. You know, so, um, you know, I'm from the rural South, from rural Georgia, um, Manchester, Georgia, to be specific. And I had really, really good teachers and mentors in public schools there. Um, and, you know, they really taught me, you know, the wonders of, you know, just the sort of um, basics, right? That there were whole worlds in, you know, learning to read well. I remember one of my teachers, Tina Lilliot, you know, one day said to us in ninth grade English, you know, literature teaches you to think, people. <laughs> that's something that's always stayed with me, that, uh, you know, that uh, these are ways to think more cleanly, you know, um, teaching is, reading is. Um, you know, I also jokingly sometimes say to my students that, you know, I'm that old school Negro intellectual, you know, and there I'm referencing my teachers, you know, who secreted, you know, these really sort of critical insights in you know, basic things like teaching us to read well, you know, to interpret well, right? And so one of the first things that I do, for instance, whenever I'm teaching a theory course is to assign that old, you know, 1950s text, part of it from Mortimer Adler, um, how to read a book. And I ask the students to read the nonfiction um, section you know, and for me, it's about getting them to read uh, more efficiently, um, you know, more carefully, and also to be clear what the rules or the, the methods for doing that are, right? And that's, for me, also related to the political question, right? Because one of the things that I've been really struck by in my time at the university is that, you know, you know, all those exclusions, racism, homophobia, sexism, they oftentimes in the academic setting function at the level of reading, you know? It's, you know, um, the text by women, people of color uh, are oftentimes the texts that are, it's okay to read them shabbily, you know? It's okay to say that there's no depth there. And then you can go on and, you know, justify not awarding that person tenure or not extending a job to them. And it's, it all emanates from, you know, racism at the level of the textual engagement, you know? So for me, you know, there's a lot at stake in insisting that, um, you know, students observe the rules of good reading. You know, first you read sympathetically. You know, secondly, you try to come to terms with the author. Third, you know, be able to state the author's uh, uh, argument in two sentences. You know, then go on to, to state the architecture of the text. You know, so applying real depth to the reading context so that when the student encounters minoritized works that they apply depth in that context as well right and you know again that's something that i learned from my teachers you know in high school um i also had really great political mentors um both in high school and in college so you know, one of my mentors, Alfred Randolph, was the principal of the junior high school where I went. And he was also the race man, you know, in our county. And so he took me under his wing and, you know, you know, taught me um, and my friends, 
you know, how to organize, you know, how to uh, mount a protest, you know. The first time I ever heard the category um, redistricting was in the mid 80s from him, because it was something that the county NAACP, of which he was a part, and so was I, um, were facing in the county. And of course, now that's part of the, you know, the rights platform nationally, right? Um, when I got to Howard, you know, I was fortunate to be mentored by um, Donald Addison, who, you know, was the former director of the Urban League in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was also my first sociology professor. He's the one who said to me, you know, you could be a theorist. Why don't you think about being a theorist? Um, he was also one of the architects for the uh, sit-ins, lunch counter sit-ins at North Carolina um, A&T. So he was mentoring those students who came up with that. He was the mentor for Jesse Jackson when Jackson was a student, you know, there. And then there's Walter Cass Fishman, um, who Tina and I share. Um, Walter was um, also my theory instructor and one of my advisors. And it was Walter who said to me, and she allowed me to shadow her to do, you know, the work that uh, the activist work that she was doing um, at high schools and blah, blah, blah. And I said to her, you know, I want to use you as a model for becoming a a radical intellectual and she very wisely said to me you know i'm very honored but you really have to be your own model you know so i had these really wonderful you know teachers um i could go on and on so you know in graduate school it was george lipsitz and lisa Lowe, you know um you know who really taught me that the work that we do can be a way of imagining new forms of community and using the work as a blueprint to enact those communities in terms of um, the graduate student, uh, students that a program admits, or the people that are hired, you know, under, you know, um, you know visionary initiatives, right? And so I've been really fortunate to have, you know, mentors along the way who helped me to wed the pedagogical and the political. That's an amazing answer. Um, thank you. I, um, I think, I mean, one of the things we'd love to dive into is your work, um, which offers a lot of clarity on the relationship between um, political and social movements. Um, and knowledge formations and on one hand, and then also the techniques that um, normative power structures, people in power use to target um, those incursions for whether it's assimilation or capture or elimination. Um, I'm wondering for readers who may not have encountered your work before, is there an example of that kind of relationship historically movement, power, capture, evasion um, that you particularly um, enjoy telling people about or you think is mm -hmm. especially illuminating? Sure, yeah, like, you know, one of them, I mean, there's several. I immediately go to advertising, you know, because I think advertising has done, you know, has illustrated that phenomena very well. You know, so for instance, um, the Coca-Cola ad, you know, it's called the Hilltop ad, you know, um, I'd like to, uh, I forget how it even starts. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Buy, I think it ends there, but like it begins with something else. I'd like to teach the world to sing. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect like harmony. harmony. I'd like to and blah, blah, blah. Well, you, so you know the song that it ends with uh, what the world needs today is Coke, right? Well, the person who starts singing that song is, you know, um, a young white woman in hippie you know, garb. She's surrounded by a, you know, kind of multicultural cast, right? Also in the sort of countercultural garb of the 1960s, right? Um, you know, and so other ads, McDonald's, the McDonald's ads, like all of a sudden, you know, if you wanted to see Black people 
on TV at a certain time, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you knew you could find him in McDonald's commercials, right? And so what intrigued me about uh, what advertising was doing was that it was, you know, taking, you know, the sort of demands of the social movements for greater representation, greater visibility of, you know, minoritized folks, and then offering advertising and branding as a satisfaction of those demands, right? Um, you know, so in at the level of capital, but also, you know, the ways in which um, universities uh, distorted uh, affirmative action aims and only let in so many to make it seem as if uh, they were actually responding to social justice demands, right? Um, so not a commitment to redistribution at all, which is what the social movements were calling for, but uh, you know, a presentation of you know, um, a representative instance, you know, to make it seem as if they were um, fulfilling those demands and stuff. You know, if we were to look in sort of contemporary moments, say like in the 2020, you know, I mean, it, it was lightning speed the way in which there were the protests and then there were all these corporations that, would, that came out, you know, um, Uber, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, you know, the hotels, all of them declaring their support for Black Lives Matter, right? Now, these are also companies with uh, horrible labor histories, many of them, right? <laughs> and labor policies, right? But, um, you know, when I started working on that topic, I started to see the ways in which it was everywhere, you know, how corporations, the government, the universities were cannibalizing, uh, trying to cannibalize the demands and arguments of various social and student movements, you know, and again, not for the purposes of redistribution, but for the purposes of aesthetics and representation, purely. Does that answer the question? Yeah, and to go from corporations to universities that are often also sort of work like corporations, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how, do you, how do you see it uh, playing out currently in, in university settings with the co-optation of um, student protest and movements and the development and also faculty unionization and, you know, through the, the hyper development of um, diversity, equity, inclusion programs and mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, naming vice presidents and, you know, mm -hmm. as a as a sort of cloaking device yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for real social change. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, you gave the answer there, right? That, you know, there are all these sort of mechanisms at work, you know, to again, make it seem as if the demand for redistribution is being satisfied. And, you know, so you have things like, um, you know, the sort of high level appointments or, you know, in terms of the diversity offices or in terms of the vice president of this or, you know, what have you that, um, you know, they become these moments in which, um, you know, the institution can say that, all right, so we care so much about your demands that we're going to have this post, you know, of someone who is going to represent um, our commitment to uh, various minoritized constituencies, right? Now, you know, the problem with that is that that office 
is intended to be an agent of the institution, you know, and not necessarily um, an agent to fulfill uh, oftentimes the protests or the social movements or student movements that occasioned, you know, that kind of crisis in the first place, right? Um, so if you imagine that a lot of these positions come out of, you know, student protest, student agitation, you know, students responding to or in the tradition of, you know, what Martin Luther King defined as, um, uh, uh, you know, the sort of creative tension, you know, that is produced in direct action. You know, and it's for the reorganization of, you know, a social order. But then what the institution does is to respond to that creative tension by um, offering a representative of the social order, but a representative who, in, an, in you know, a minoritized profile. And that actually becomes a way of disciplining the intention of the direct action that initiated the tension in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the diversity offices are historically the ways in which that happens, right? Um, in We Demand, um, I did a chapter on the Nixon report on campus unrest from 1973, right? And one of the recommendations of that report to quell student unrest and to kind of um, dilute it once it happens is that you have something called the ombudsman, you know? And the ombudsman is our diversity officer now, right? The interesting thing about the report is that it offers the ombudsman as the kind of, um, you know, the sort of persuasive soft power response to student protests. It also then recommends the building of campus police forces, you know, as the hard power uh, militarized response to um, student unrest. The important thing is that they go hand in hand, you know, as strategies of containment. That's not to say that you don't have very well meaning people you know, in uh, who find themselves in those offices. Uh, the, for those of conscience, what happens is that they realize that they are in an office that had a certain intention, you know, to it. So then it becomes a question of, okay, so how do I occupy this position in ways that the institution didn't intend, you know? I would love to ask a follow-up about this. And I'm gonna, um, so there's a wonderful Skidmore student organizer who is a first year um, named Miles who um, read We Demand and I think then imbibed a lot of the sort of works on critical, critical university studies. And I asked, I asked them, did they have any questions? And I think the question that they asked um, is, is sort of flows right directly from, mm -hmm. um, from where, where your answer just ended, which is when we find ourselves or when one finds oneself in our various intersections and risk factors and forms of power that we hold within an office, whether that's a diversity office or a faculty slot or whatever, students, different constituencies coming together, um, what, what is coalition building look like and what kinds of strategies um, are available? So Miles says, um, how can the differences of power and risk that different constituencies and people have be used and mobilized for things like, for example, faculty unionization or supporting black studies or gender studies department when they're underfunded. Um, and then they follow up and we demand Ferguson talks about Ranciere's concept of DEMOS. How do faculty fit into that? That's an interesting question. I'm thinking about how do faculty fit into the demos? You know, of course, in, in We Demand, I wasn't talking about you know, necessarily the faculty as the demos, but the sort of, um, you know, the communities really outside 
the university as part of the DMOS, the historic DMOS. And I think that's important to retain because, um, you know, in order for our movements to campus movements to have the greatest power and potential, they have to be both um, site specific, but also reach across, you know, to the interests and struggles of communities outside the university, which, you know, it's always, you know, what's inside and what's outside, right? Because, you know, the person who is working, you know, on the janitorial staff or the person who is working in the admin office, they live in those communities, right? You know, and so there's a moment to actually broaden our political horizons um, in ways that would acknowledge how um, people live their lives in multiple places, not just in the university, you know? Um, so that's one answer in terms of the DMOS. I think that, um, you know, a fully developed notion of the DMOS for faculty would mean that the faculty, um, you know, are trying to reworld university politics, you know, so that it's not, they're not politics simply contained to the university, you know, um, but they're thinking about things like the ways in which universities devastate the communities around them because um, they're nonprofit states often. Um, the fact that they don't have to pay taxes uh, and they don't then contribute to the public good of uh, the schools around them, the fact that many universities, Yale included, uh, operate as real estate agencies, buying up neighborhoods and making life even more precarious for uh, the folks in, that, in those neighborhoods. Um, so that's one. But then also the question of you know, how to, um, if you find yourself in positions that had uh, agendas of regulation and exclusion, what do you do, right? And I think the first thing is to assume that we all are in those positions. If you work at a university, you know, you're in that position, you know, um, it doesn't matter if you're an officer, you could just be a faculty member, you know, but that is also the position that you're in. For me, it is about, you know, trying to then work the contradictions of the institution, right? Um, the institution presumes, had certain presumptions around, you know, my hire and other people's hires, but what happens in the classroom, you know, that's completely my territory, you know? And it's also a chance to get students to reflect on the sort of uh, regimes within the university and also think against them, you know, too. Um, you know, so for instance, I teach um, a course on the campus uh, and taught a critical university studies course my first year, you know, here. And I was surprised that there was, had never been a course of its type from my understanding that reflected on, you know, the university as um, an institution of power, but also how Yale has contributed to networks of power historically within the US and around the globe, you know? It definitely is a class that's like a hagiography of Yale, with like Yale, a history, but that's not critical. Yeah, Yale. no, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, critical university studies. I mean, I have people here at Yale, students and faculty, who turned to me and wonder and said, what, what, what is that? You know, um, whereas, I mean, it's a developed category in public institutions, you know, critical university studies. Um, but it was completely new to folks here. And um, so that's one. But then also I teach at um, a prison about an hour from here, uh, 
McDougal Walker prison, it's a men's prison. And uh, how is it possible to use that classroom so that students have a way and a forum for thinking about power, you know, uh, and issues of race and also capitalism, how can we create a classroom space that um, has a deliberate and concerted conversation around that and so that they are not simply resigned to having those conversations on the block, you know, in the prison, you know? Um, you know, there's this wonderful speech that Baldwin gave around education about, you know, how to educate in ways that the institutions never intended, you know? So for me, that is a way of, as a teacher, uh, working the contradictions, you know? And I think it's important to say that there are contradictions in all of our positions, but in order to work them, we've also got to identify them. Yeah, I wanna follow up on that. Um, when you're at Yale or at the prison, can you give some specific examples of how you approach this, this whole systemic issue um, you know, of power and difference and, and um, uh, you know, student um, voice uh, in your own pedagogical strategies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I use um, whenever I teach is this creative thinking exercise. Uh, from Edward de Bono, um, the six hats, um, the six thinking hats. And, you know, so there's the, I'll go through the colors, although my students object to the colors, especially the ones in the prison. <laughs> the white hat, the information hat, you know, think of paper, the yellow hats, the positivity hat, think of the sun, the green hat, the pure creativity hat, think of, um, flowers, the red hat, uh, the feelings hat, you know, think of the heart, uh, the black hat, when they really object to, uh, the caution hat, think of a judge's robe, and then the blue hat is the overview hat, in case you want to change hats, so think of the sky. And so if we're reading, for instance, um, as an example, one of the text reports put out by Queers for Economic Justice. Um, thinking here of my queer and trans liberation course uh, for undergrads on the campus. You know, in, in that report, uh, it's a report that was about houseless LGBTQ folks in New York in the 2000s. And the report was done by those folks, okay? And there is a, uh, a really, a strong current within the piece about the institutional violence that people face in the shelters, on the street, because of homophobia, because of sexism, classism, you know, racism, and also their ways of coping, right? And those people talk about like the art that they're doing, their pets, their lovers, their friends, their activism. And the students in the class, this is from fall 2020, you know, just kind of spontaneously decided to apply a creativity hat or a green hat to it after they had done the information hat. That's always the rule. We start with information hat and we don't move into the caution hat until the very end. So they did the information hat and then they decided, okay, we're going to take the green hat and we're going to apply it to Yale. You know, and so they began talking about the ways that they felt the university trying to extract, you know, energies, capacities from them, right? And in ways that was similar to how the respondents in the reports were talking about things like the shelters, you know, 
And they were clear they didn't want to make an equivalence between because you know the Yale students they have you know great privilege and these are houseless folks, but there are certain resonances in terms of how the institutions work um, in treating and their words exploiting you know their constituencies, right? So there you see you know how something like a simple exercise like that you know can allow the students to um observe the intersections of various forms of power and institutions um you know when i was um teaching a section on the birth of capitalism within europe and the formation of citizens middle class folks the bourgeoisie and the barbarians who would become the proletariat in the uh, early modern period, you know, of capital in the medieval period, rather. Uh, and there's always this talk in that text. This is Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism. The students there began to talk about apply a creativity hat to. Uh, this was the last year when uh, Texas announced it was going to outlaw abortion. And the students there, and we're talking about, you know, black and brown men, you know, in a maximum security prison, you know, began to draw connections from the regulation of newly proletarianized labor in the medieval period to the regulation of women's bodies, you know, through the law. Okay. So I, mean, I think I'm offering that Tina as a way to say that like these simple exercises, you know, can actually be a way for people to observe and construct intersections. One of the things I think is really cool about that is that, and, and your work as a whole, like I feel like there's a real correspondence that like in observing intersections between different kinds of power, one of the ways that we can come to those observations is through um, trying out and experimenting with different methods, which then sort of it exposes the intersections of power, but also the intersections of methods and location. And so like there's this like initial separation, which is sort of strategic, but then they kind of they're like threads being woven um, together and revealed that they already were. Woven. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that, you know, I mean, because and one way of looking at it is, you know, I'm asking them to use the six halves to close read, right? But they understand that the close reading, you know, doesn't simply have to stay with the text. In fact, it has to move away from that text <laughs> if you're doing a green hat properly. So then it becomes a license to close read the social world. You know, which is very different from the formalist model, you know, of close reading practice where it's like you stay with the text. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think like the glasses, maybe like different tints of glasses. Is that better than hats? Um, if, the, the, if we're reading, um, that was just an image that, that came, came to sure, mind. It works for you, your students. Yeah. That's also Paula Freire's dictum of connecting the word with the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Roderick, there's so much to talk about in your work on critical university studies, but I want to refer to a quote from your book, The Reorder of Things. You say, the academy is an institution that socializes state and capital into emergent articulations of difference. Uh, we've talked some about... Frere's Connecting of Word and World uh, and your writings on the creation of the demos. Could you give some concrete examples of how you see student protest and, and student organizing uh, on the ground at colleges and universities? Bettina. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a complicated question. I think that, you know, one of the things that we have to do is kind of move away from the idea that you know, our protest movements resolve themselves in, you know, um, new departments, new programs, you know, 
new bureaucratic structures, you know? Um, if you want, and people do still, you know, they want like their department of X studies, you know? That cannot be understood to be the final resolution even when you agitate for it, you know? Like, all right, have that, but also preserve a bit, have programming for, you know, those things that departmental structures or centers cannot do, you know? Um, if you have a political energy, right? It's very difficult, next to impossible, for an administrative structure to sustain and hold that energy because it will it will become bureaucratic energy, right? So, but it's necessary for that political energy to be sustained, right? So there's a way in which we have to think, all right, so part of this will be about the building of a unit. But then other parts of this, and maybe even the more important part of this, will be about, you know, the consciousness raising that happened, you know, in the protest movement, the study groups that happened in the protest movement, and also that there will be a body that retains the spirit of protests and watches the unit. <laughs> you know, but what I've seen so often happen is that, you know, X department is built. And the students for a time think, okay, we achieved our goal. And then the students realize this is not what we had in mind. <laughs> You know, I think, uh, why not start with, all right, the unit will be a provisional answer, response, okay? But we need other structures that are extra administrative, you know, that will preserve the critical elements, you know, because, you know, Administrative structures are no place for critique, <laughs> you know, to hold critique and to foment critique, you know? Um, so, you know, that's also a way of saying that, I guess another way of putting it that, you know, all right, have your formal structure if that's what you want, but make sure you have a even more robust informal structure you know, that can hold the critical agenda and critical spirit, you know? Yeah, we um, at Skidmore, a colleague and I are, have been facilitating a study and struggle group of um, the um, abolitionist political education collective. And one of the things we're constantly trying to think through with the participants who are mostly students, but not only um, got faculty and staff participants and people from the, you know, around town um, is there's this impulse that I think has been taught um, through sort of normative schooling that a lot of people have come through. It's like, oh, wow, I'm like learning all of this stuff about how power works and how the police force and Title IX are connected to each other. And like, this is what the, this is what a strategic plan is like sort of mapping power. And the impulse is, has, is often like, so we need to start a club that gets SGA approval that, um, that can like, that can, make sure that when we graduate, because people are very aware of their transience and like want something to continue. And I think that like this, this, this um, description of always think of it, everything is provisional. Mm -hmm. um, everything can, is being remade, can power, re, power takes work too. Um, that, so like that, that being really important, but that also I've tried to start talking in terms of tradition and organizing tradition that is yeah. built through relationships that are across yeah, generations. Exactly. And, 
and then that that's how you you people can't forget those relationships right and no totally that's how you yeah no i mean this is the thing like you know i began with my teachers right that wasn't a division of a school like <laughs> you know those were relationships that were built you know across time you know that I also carry with me and other people carry with them, you know, like they, you know, it rearranged our DNA, you know, like that's the power of relationships. That's not something that an administrative office can do. You know, if you want to build, you know, a social movement, a political movement with a long-term vision, it has to be something that's going to rearrange the DNA, you know, and it has to have um, the capacity to do that. That's not what administration does. For those of us who have administrative power or find ourselves in positions of exercising managerial power in some ways, in some, some way, whether that's supervising students or being a department chair or, you know, God forbid, becoming a dean, <laughs> skills, things to keep in mind. You've already mentioned like there should be a division of the movement that is watching those offices. Mm -hmm. How do you know if you've been co-opted? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's, you know, and I should say that, you know, I'm someone who- or More co-opted than you were before since- Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I'm someone who started my first job in 2000. So I went up for early tenure and I got tenure in 2004. From 2004 until today, May 10th, 2022, I have been an officer of some sort, whether a director of undergraduate studies, a chair three times, a director of a research cluster, the um, president of, a, uh, of an academic association, you know? So I'm saying this as someone who has been an administrator a long time, you know, for the bulk of my career. We fool ourselves if we think that there is not an irreconcilable relationship between intellection and administration. Okay. Um, administration is not really about cultivating and fomenting, you know, the life of the mind or, or um, critique, you know. I mean, just practically, you spend more time in an office than you do then you can writing. And oftentimes, you know, you're relieved of teaching, okay? And oftentimes people go into administration because they want to flee from those things, right? So, uh, you know, there's a tension between them and we have to acknowledge that, right? So for me, the administrator, it is about making sure that the intellectual wins out in every fight in me, you know? Um, and there are things that I do to ensure that. So for instance, or try to ensure that, um, there's also a way of saying that it is an acceptance of my own radical vulnerability to co-optation, okay? Um, so begin there. Um, one of the things that I started doing in um, WGSS, the department that I chair, Women's Gender Sexuality Studies, is I thought, you know what? Instead of doing what chairs usually do in the faculty meetings and that, you sort of are the emissary from the deans and the higher up to, you know, your colleagues to, to relay to them what's going on in dean land and this is how it might impact us. You know, I thought, all right, I'm not going to do that. I'll, you know, announce when it's necessary. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time having what we've started to call um, lab time. And that's when someone among our faculty wants to talk about the activism, the teaching, the research that they're doing. And just that small thing has changed, you know, the ethos dramatically. 
Like mm -hmm. uh, one of the council members who WGS operates on the council model currently, um, one of the council members who this is her first year as a council member from the Divinity School in Religion said, she said, I, I, I tell my colleagues in my other programs that this is the only faculty meeting in which I take notes because I'm always learning. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, you know, the other thing that I do is, you know, I write an hour a day, you know, like I keep my appointment with, uh, the intellectual in me. Um, and I also try to treat the way in which I made all that administrative service work is that I decided, okay, I'm going to do self-ethnography, you know, you know, to sort of see what the environment is, how it's impacting me. So that's the way in which I, you know, answer your question, Lucia, around like, you know, how do you know how and when you're being impacted? You know, it's also a moment for, this is the exciting part for me, one of the exciting parts. It's a moment to enact um, and develop, you know, my own capacities for critical self-reflection. You know? Because again, if power is not something that is simply external to us, you know, thinking here of, uh, Foucault's insights, but also something that sets residence up inside of us in terms of subjectivity or Althusser, right? You know, that's the moment in which deep self-reflection and also alternative forms of discipline, you know, in the kind of, you know, religious sense almost, um, become really important. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about um, about in some Christian communities, like you don't decide if you have the call to ministry, the community does, mm -hmm. or like, and if you have lost the call, the community decides that, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. sort of, and that's an alternate form of discipline than maybe some of the other ones of self-interest or mm -hmm. yeah, advancement or whatever. So like, how do we pattern our lives in sort of different intersecting and contradictory um, rhythms and, and forms of accountability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important also to sort of say to students, you know, grad students in particular, or undergrads who are thinking about becoming um, academics. And I learned this at UIC that a lot of them are afraid because they see the damage that institutions have done to their professors. And still they want to pursue this as a vocation potential, right? And so I think it's important to say to them, yes, you know, the institution can do damage, but, you know, it is completely within your capacity to survive, you know, this institution, you know? Um, and I don't think that uh, that message gets across because I mean, to be quite honest, a lot, not a lot of us think about, you know, how to create, you know, safe passage within treacherous waters, you know, in the academy. I can't, we, Yo, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say that like, you know, but if we're going to encourage other critical intellectuals to emerge, we better start thinking about that. And also modeling it, you know? I feel like I have a conversation almost every week with a junior colleague or grad student or a student, kind of rarely with senior colleagues, frankly, about you know, who has gotten to a point of like some job security and seniority who we would want to model our, who we would emulate, want to emulate politically, mm -hmm. intellectually, mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. um, and the list is short mm -hmm. um, often. And then there's this like, does 
does how does power change a person? And I think people are very afraid of that. I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid of how capital produces those subjects to go yeah, back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think that a lot of people are afraid, you know, because of what they see. I mean, it's not like they're afraid of, about something that doesn't exist. No, they actually see reasons to be afraid. I think what can be offered if we were deliberate about it is, you know, a model of. living in this world um, and not being corrupted by it. I mean, this is where, you know, the grandson of like a preacher comes, you know, to the fore, right? Like, you know, um, it is possible to walk through the valley, you know, listen, I was just the, the daughter of a preacher. I was about to say, uh, yeah, the um, live in the world but not be corrupted or the Calvinist in me is like, everybody is all way, already corrupt. Mm-hmm, we are corrupt. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there is some reason to hope and build relationships mm-hmm. in the smoldering mm-hmm, ruins mm-hmm. and like what could mm-hmm. become of that. Yeah, and also that, you know, if we go with that, you can also be more than your corruption. Yeah. You know, God's that's God's entirely God. possible. It is entirely possible to be more than your corruption. Mm. yeah yeah and to see that in others we think yeah yeah exactly yeah wow this is a beautiful place i feel like one of the ways we remind ourselves of being more than our corruption or like dream enact those worlds is by reading widely consuming Mm -hmm. thinking aging widely one of my social media uh triggers is when faculty brag about having not read a novel in like 20 years. It's like, I don't have time for that. I'm doing it. It's like, you don't have time to like grow your imagination. Um, So that is my way of transitioning us to, we have, we have exceeded our time. Um, Thank you for, thank you for your patience, Rod. Um, of, Of, of going around and doing our, what are you listening to, reading, watching, thinking with you know I am reading I have to do a uh, lead a panel for a uh, conference on Saturday of devoted to the work of Gail Jones the writer of Corregidora Eva's Man um, and this is a panel on her 2021 novel Palmares um, which is about a maroon society and yeah and it's uh, it's just fabulous. I mean, I'm not going to give it away um, in case people want to read it, but, you know, imagine for those who know Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism, the part where Robinson is talking about the, it's a rebuttal to Marx, uh, Marx's notion of abstract labor. And he says, those people on the slave ships, you know, were not, you know, these abstract entities that they came with their own cosmologies, you know, um, ideologies, cultures. And then later on in the chapter, he talks about um, the role of uh, Obia men and women, you know, in maroon societies and their, how key they were for resistance. All right. Imagine that in novel form, and that's Palmares. I'm reading that. I'm also reading, um, you know, I just got another one of Edward de Bono's um, books. And this one is, you know, like a daily creative thinking exercise, a new one every day. And I think those are important and they relate to, you know, for me, the question of power because, you know, Power is all about taking what was lateral and making it normative, linear. You know, what was creative, what was insurgent, making it normative and linear. You know, that's also how, if you think of the move from lateral thinking to logical thinking works, that's a description of knowledge as well. So that uh, the stakes for learning creative thinking go well beyond, you know, what you do in a classroom or what you do in a book, but it is also about like, 
how to think beyond uh, the line that power has set. You know, so I'm reading that. Tina. Okay, I'm watching uh, season three of Atlanta, which is actually not in Atlanta this season. They're in Amsterdam and oh, oh, wow. Glover's um, uh, series. And it's not only about his Donald Glover's character, who's the manager of a, a rapper who's become a, a superstar, Paperboy. Mm -hmm. um, Paperboy, yeah. I've only seen four episodes, but there are two of the four um, are stories about something entirely different. Mm, wow. And uh, the last one, I'm not going to give too much away, is about an elite couple with a like a kindergarten son, age son, white couple in New York City uh, who get a call one morning as they're rushing around, uh, don't know how to get their kid to school. They get a call that their um, nanny, who's from Trinidad and Tobago, um, has died. And the way the story is written is incredible. Mm, mm. It's different television. Mm, um, mm, mm. new has been created. I, it's, I, re, I highly recommend it. All right, it cool. very, I mean, I've been thinking about it for days. Wow, cool. I've only gotten yes. to, to the second season or end of second season for Atlanta. Well, this is, this, he does, uh, Glover's doing some different stuff here. Okay, all right, very cool. Okay, so Lucia, what about you? You know, I'm afraid I have kind of, I mean, I feel, hmm, I've been, I've been, what have I been engaging lately? I feel like all the books I've read recently, I've already talked about on this podcast. Um, I'm really into the WNBA right now. It's back, free Brittany Griner, yeah. um, and uh, pay the players and expand the league. Um, so that's been my, that's been my passion project of late is just to, um, to listen to watch the WNBA. I um, have been, honestly, I have been helping out some friends who are having health issues by reading deeply their health insurance policies mm -hmm. and researching health insurance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and healthcare in this country. Um, and like, I'm just like, I'm trying to think like, I was like, why haven't I been reading as many books lately? It's because I've been, it's because I've been reading pages on pages of health insurance policies, um, for colleagues and friends, um, who for various reasons are less able to do that right now. And, um, that has been, I mean, it's been, it's been an experience and it's been a kind of mutual aid that has like. I think become increasingly important in um, in my life and as in, in the multiple communities I am in. That sometimes when people are um, sometimes when people are most in need, they're the least capable of mm -hmm. of navigating bureaucracy. And one way we can help each other is by being sort of a feminist concierge. Um, for getting access to resources, and I have learned quite a lot in. Um, in doing that over the last few weeks. And I know way more about um, ways that people get grifted um, if they don't have someone or they don't have disposable mm -hmm. time. Um, there's a reason that healthcare debt is the biggest form of debt. So mm -hmm. that's a, not a very happy um, answer, but it's like, it's a, just an honest answer. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I think more people could, I know that there have been times in my life when I could have used a feminist healthcare concierge helping me understand my insurance. Mm -hmm. Started in the union at Yale, um, trying to, being a union organizer means knowing a lot about healthcare and talking to people about it. <laughs> yeah. well, Rod, you, your work has really helped me to understand uh, my own institution and the living wage movement and campaign that I'm part of, the decolonizing curriculum movement of the, of the Student Government Association and that co-optation and uh, my own complicity, and it's it's given me some hope just to be able to intellectualize it in a context that is often, as you say, anti-intellectual. So thank you for that. Good. Yeah, well, thank you, and you know, congratulations on all of the work that you you both are doing. You know, there at Agnes Scott and in Atlanta. Well, thank you, Rod Ferguson, for being on Nothing Never Happens. My pleasure.
All right. Thanks, Rod. been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Dr. Roderick Ferguson, the William Robertson Co-Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and Professor of American Studies at Yale University. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen performed by Lance Eric Hagen, along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music for this episode is by Paul Myrie, and it's entitled Prayer for Buka, available on Bandcamp.com. We have taken the leap, and we would like you to consider donating to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, on Patreon.com. After over five years of growing the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a shoestring, volunteer, and almost entirely self-funded operation, we're excited to open up opportunities for our listeners to directly support our programming and operation cost. Your donations will enable us to cover the fees for our new and improved hosting platform and webpage. So far, we have asked our amazing guests to join us as volunteers and we're extremely grateful that they have said yes. But we want to get to a place where we can offer them honoraria. We hope and intend to add an exclusive podcast feed for guests where co-hosts Tina, me, and Lucia answer questions for listeners and have dialogues about what we are learning as we go about the work of teaching and learning. No donation amount is too small. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners for your engagement, support, and encouragement as we continue to grow. So donations can be made to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast at patreon.com. Thank you. Thank you.